I love the Advent season. It's a special time in the life of our church, a special time in the life of the Christian, because during the Advent season, we get to think about and celebrate the coming of Christ. Now, certainly we celebrate the coming of Christ at all times, but there's a unique focus that we place on that, that coming that should lead us to celebrate. We celebrate today the fact that Jesus came, that he did leave the glory of heaven. We celebrate today the way that he came, that he came in humility, taking on flesh, being born in a manger for our sake. And we certainly celebrate the reason why he came, to offer salvation to us sinners in need of rescue. These are all marvelous realities of the coming of Christ that we should rejoice in as the people of God, that we should meditate upon because they remind us, they prove to us over and over again the love that God has for us and has shown for us in Jesus. But it's also important for us to remember that in this Advent season, we are not only celebrating, thinking about the first coming of Christ. We should also think about his second. You know, he's promised us that he will come again. And when he comes again, it will not be in humility. It will be in glory. And another purpose of the Advent season is to build anticipation for that glorious day when Christ will come again. And it's important for us as the people of God to be mindful to think about both comings of Christ. And our text this morning in the book of Malachi reminds us why. As we move from chapter 2 into chapter 3, we are reminded of the, the need for God's people to think about and celebrate both his first and second coming. Because friends, we live in troubled days, don't we? The brokenness of this world is so evident. Every day it seems we see the worst of humanity on display. We see the continual effect of the curse of sin, wars, and rumors of wars. It's horrific what's taking place in the Middle East right now. It's horrific what happened in Israel and the devastation that Hamas continues to bring upon all the people of this area. It's terrible what's happened and is happening in Ukraine. Hundreds of thousands of people have died because of sin. An unjust, unprovoked war brought about by a power-hungry authoritarian leader. It's tragic, devastating. And people are clamoring for, for answers as they, they witness all of this darkness, brokenness, injustice on display in the world. People are, people are trying to make sense of what's taking place. And at times, it's even led people to begin to question the goodness of God. After all, if God is good and he's all-powerful, and he could do something about the injustices that we are witnessing, the way that, that sinful people are acting toward the detriment of other people, why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he bring Justice, but Advent is a gift because the season of Advent reminds us that God is about a greater work, that He has a part, that He has a greater plan that is still unfolding. Advent 
should cause us not to question the goodness of God, but to rest in the goodness of God. So this morning, in the midst of all the difficulties of this world, maybe in the difficulties of your own life, if you are experiencing the brokenness of this world, if you're experiencing injustice in this world, can we allow the scripture to do its work? Let's allow the word of God to remind us of this central biblical truth. The coming of Christ is the answer. The the advent of Christ is the hope that we need in our brokenness. The, The advent of Christ is the hope that we need in this season, in every season of life. When injustice seems to be winning the day, when injustice seems to be the defining characteristic of our day, we must look to Christ and remember God is not unjust. He is merciful. That's why there is a delay. He's delaying and displaying his mercy because he wants as many people as possible to come to saving faith in him. But that delay will not last forever. He will come again. And the hope is that as many people as possible have taken advantage of the mercy God has displayed in the first coming of Christ, so they will be ready to withstand his second. Now, I know this may seem like a very heavy message for a Christmas season, but I I pray that at the end of it, you will see that it is dripping with hope, and you will be encouraged as you celebrate the first and anticipate the second coming of Christ. Malachi chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 17. And we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what the word of God says. You, people of God, have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, you've wearied him by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Essentially, our text is divided into two parts. And the first part, chapter 2, verse 17, the people of God are once again bringing a baseless claim against the Lord. And then in the second part, the part we're in chapter 3 this morning, God offers a gracious answer to their baseless charge. There's a baseless charge followed by a gracious answer. Let's begin by looking at this baseless charge that the people of God levy against God himself. Now, they've questioned God already in our text or in the book of Malachi in some pretty surprising ways. 
To this point, they've questioned his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his covenant and his faithfulness to his people. They've questioned the declarations that he's made over them and they've even questioned his love. And now they're taking aim at his justice. And this is a character issue. They're calling in to question the character of God. They're questioning his goodness, his fairness, and his righteousness when they begin to clamor for him to act justly. Look at what they assert in verse 17. Here's what they say. God delights in those who are doing evil. Can you imagine? He delights in them. He blesses pagan nations around us while he curses his people. I thought he was just, but he doesn't seem very just from our perspective. Where is the God of justice? These are wearying words to the Lord. How could they not be? When he has evidenced throughout the entire history of his covenant relationship with this people, the exact opposite. I grow weary of hearing the complaints of this people as I read the text over and over again. And these accusations aren't even against me. They're against the character of God. God's people are looking around them and they're seeing foreign nations like Persia and Egypt thriving while this so-called people of God are very much not thriving. They're making a comparison and they're only looking at it through the lens of fleshly eyes and it's leading to disappointment, bitterness, and envy. And rather than reminding each other of the testified faithfulness of God, the displayed faithfulness of God throughout the history of their people, rather than stirring each other up and, and averting their eyes from a, a fleshly lens to a spiritual one, to look at heaven, the people of God are complaining and stirring up faithlessness. Now listen, if you, if you were looking from just a purely human perspective, you could understand the frustration. You could understand the confusion. Things were not turning out as they hoped it would when they came back from exile. The joy that they felt from their miraculous return has faded. Think about all they've experienced over the last several years. They thought the return was a miracle. They said that coming back to the, the land of promise under the favored hand of a Persian king was a miracle of God. Even Zerubbabel was chosen to be God's signet ring in Haggai chapter 2. They were able to rebuild the temple. They were able to renew sacrifices. You see this in Ezra 3 and Haggai 2 and Zechariah 2. And the people of God had renewed their covenant with God. The, the point of the exile had worked. There was a renewal taking place and God's people had turned their heart once again to the Lord. And they thought that the messianic age was upon them. That now was the time for the Messiah to come and he would once again make Israel the preeminent nation upon the earth. But their expectations did not meet God's timing. And anytime expectation doesn't meet reality, disappointment can step in. And that's what happened. Because the messianic age had not arrived, the people were disappointed. They were still living under the rule of Persia. What's worse is that the promised land was no longer a paradise. It was subject to drought and an infestation of locusts. People were starving. 
They had no food. And these external realities, these physical realities, had led the people of God to see their religious activity as burdensome. There was no spiritual effect. There was no joy. Rather, the people of God were violating the covenant of their fathers. The renewal was gone. And they look at these nations around them, and they ask, what's going on? Why are they thriving? Why are they the ones with power? They're not the people of God. We are. Has God changed? Has he placed his favor upon them and not us? All the while, they failed to see that it wasn't God who had changed, but them. This baseless charge against God's character was rooted in a larger problem that we've already seen evidenced in the work of Malachi. And it's a potential problem for us as well, church family. Their understanding of the world was not rooted in its proper, proper place. They weren't thinking about the world through wisdom. True biblical wisdom. Because where is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. That's what Proverbs 9.10 says. And we've already seen these these people did not fear the Lord. They didn't respect him, have a healthy awe of him. They took him for granted. And when they encountered an issue of understanding, they could not understand why God was allowing something to happen to them. When they felt injustice, they did not seek to answer that question through the eyes of faith, trusting in the character and nature of God. They actually questioned the character and nature of God. Listen, the answers to the questions that we face in this life must be informed by God-given revelation rather than simple human observation. Let me say that again. The questions, the, the true questions that we have in this life, honest questions, they must be answered, informed by God-given revelation rather than simple human observation because God sees more than we see. God knows more than we know. Hear me, the issue is not the question itself. It is okay to question. It is okay to wonder why things are difficult, why injustice is happening to you or to others around us. There are places in the Bible where God does allow for this kind of questioning. And it's a questioning in faith that leads to faithfulness. We saw it on display in the psalm we read to begin our service in Psalm 73, the psalm of Asaph. He said, I almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he said, I'm looking out. I'm seeing all these people who have no desire to follow God prospering. And for a moment, I almost fell victim to it. I almost begin to question the character and the goodness of God. But then I thought about how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to God. I went to the sanctuary of God and I discerned the end of all these actions. There was something greater going on. And then he says, for me, it's good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your work. I'm going to trust in your goodness. I'm going to trust in your justness. That even though it may seem unfair right now, I know that you are a God who is just and you will set things right. That's what it means to be at peace. 
You will make things and set things right. You see, Asaph allows the character of God to drive the answer. He doesn't allow his question to begin to defame the character of God like these people did. We must trust, friends, in our God. What he has revealed of himself, how he has proven himself faithful over and over again, even when we don't understand. Because he knows more, he sees more. That's what Asaph did, what, what, what we must do. It's what the people then in Malachi's time were not doing. But even then, even as they question the character of God, God offers them an opportunity to respond in an appropriate way by answering their baseless claim. It's amazing to me the goodness of God on display here in this text. Even though they make a baseless charge against the Lord, he still offers them a gracious answer to allow them the opportunity to once again be captured by his goodness. Here's what he says, basically, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. Don't mistake my patience for indifference. You're seeing this injustice around you. You think there are things that are unfair. You're wondering why the wicked prosper, but you, quote unquote, the righteous, even though you're not righteous, you don't. Don't mistake my patience for indifference and don't mistake my mercy for unholy delight. That's what you're saying. But don't mistake my mercy for unholy delight. God says, there will come a time when I will act. I will act. I'm going to deal with all of the brokenness, all the sinfulness, all the injustice that are present in this world. I'm going to commit, I'm going to act to take care of all the injustices that you see and all the injustice that you don't see, that you're blind to, that you yourself have committed. And I'm going to do this in two ways. And here's where the, the text kind of turns eschatological. This is where the text turns to begin to talk about future things, specifically the work that God is going to do through Christ, through the advent of Christ in both of his comings. Look at chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's a lot of messengers in here. Let me try to bring some clarity to this, what Malachi is saying. God has sent and will send messengers, forerunners, to prepare for a greater messenger. There will be a string of messengers like Malachi right here in our text. Later, John the Baptist, who is the last messenger, the last forerunner, who will help the people of God see a greater messenger, a messenger of a new covenant who will come and help to make things right. Help to set things right, to evidence God's care for all the brokenness of this world and his action to take care of all of the injustice. He will deal with all the things that have plagued this world because of sin. God's character demands that sinfulness be accounted for. God's character demands that injustice be set right. And it is this 
greater messenger who will accomplish this. And he will accomplish this in two ways, Malachi says. This messenger will act to purify and he will act to condemn. This messenger will rectify brokenness. He will rectify sin. He will act to set right injustice by working in a way to purify the people of God and then condemning those who are outside the people of God. Notice firstly, this messenger will act to purify God's people. And this is the work that will be associated with his first coming. Now, as Malachi speaks about the coming of Christ, both advents of Christ, when he's speaking here, 400 years before the first coming of Christ, the full work of Christ seems to be very close together. We know on this side of the first coming of Jesus and, of course, the council of Scripture, that those, those works are going to be spread out over time. But in here, he's seeing them closely together. And so he begins talking about what God will do at the first coming of Christ. Jesus will work to make it possible for God's people to be purified, purified of their sin, purified of their brokenness, freed from the, the guilt of all the injustice they have committed. This is the language we see in verses 2 to 3. Now, he'll begin with the priests, but the hope is what's done in the priests will have ripple effects throughout the entirety of God's people. And look at the language of purification that God uses here to, to describe how much we need to be cleaned from the effect of our sin. Jesus will work to pull out our impurities. He says here, he will sit as a refiner a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver. There are so many impurifications that make it hard for us to be used by God. This, this messenger, this, this Christ who will come will work in such a way that those impurities can be removed. He will scrub us like a fuller, with a fuller soap. He will scrub us in such a way that it will remove the stain of sin in order to make us righteous. In order to make us finally worthy of the blessings of God. And how will he do that? How will this messenger act to purify, to cleanse, to scrub? Well, he will Make it possible for us to be declared clean by experiencing the greatest injustice that mankind has ever known. If anyone in the history of the world has experienced injustice, if anyone in the history of the world has experienced the sinfulness of man being thrust upon another man, it is Jesus. In fact, the injustice that Jesus suffered on our behalf is infinitely worse than any injustice any one of us could ever experience because Jesus was truly innocent. And yet he was condemned by the very people he created. He was holy in every way. He was righteous, but he was judged, judged by the very people whose sin he came to deal with. He was the pure and spotless lamb, the author of life, and yet he was put to death by the very people he gave life exchanged for a murderer, someone who took life, an insurrectionist. Hear the gospel here, church family. I want you to, to rejoice 
and what Christ accomplished in his first coming. Jesus will cover the injustice of his people by suffering injustice. He will cover our brokenness by allowing himself to be broken. God poured out his wrath upon the Son. And the Son willingly took that punishment, even though he did not deserve it, so that God's justice can be satisfied and we can be declared free. The work of Christ upon the cross displays and guarantees the justice of God. Listen, if Jesus had not acted, then it is, it is possible, it is right for God's character to be questioned. Because think about this, how could, how could God delight in us when we are sinful, when we are broken, when we are actors of injustice? How could God delight in that kind of people when he is so holy and, and utterly different and has declared that he cannot delight in those who are sinful? But because of the work of Christ, there's no scandal in God's grace toward us because he has made us holy in the Son, because we are made righteous in the Son. And so now the favor that God gives to the Son, he gives to us as his people. The work of Christ allows God to delight in us by making us righteous and it allows us to delight in him. So that once again, we can offer offerings in righteousness that will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years, verse 4. So for some, God will deal with their sin and their works of injustice their worthiness of judgment through the work of Christ's first coming, allowing those in Jesus to be considered righteous and pleasing to the Lord. But for those who are not covered by Christ's first coming, they will be dealt with at his second. Everyone has committed sin against the Lord. Everyone has acted unjustly against the law of the Lord. Every one of us is worthy of judgment. Every one of us must have our actions dealt with, either through the first coming of Christ or the second. If you are in Christ, you take joy today in the fact that your sins are accounted for, covered, forgiven. You are free from condemnation because you are in Christ. But if you are outside of Christ, you are still in condemnation. If Jesus has not taken your punishment you will take that punishment when he returns and forever. Friends, that second return, that second coming of Christ, it will be devastating for those who are outside of Jesus. Only those who are in Christ will be able to stand, as verse 2 suggests. And yet, these evil men, looking at a perceived disparity, looking at so-called unfairness in the world have the audacity to ask God to come in judgment. God, where are you? Why don't you come and judge these wicked nations? Little do they know what they're asking. Because if God came to judge the wicked nations, it would include them. Like in the days of Amos, chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, God says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? 
It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? In moments when we cry out for justice, we have to remember what it would look like for God to actually deal with us justly. If we say, God, give them what they deserve and give us what we deserve. Oh, friends, what do we deserve? What is it that we deserve if God had not acted mercifully and gracious toward us in Christ? We deserve judgment, eternal separation. We deserve eternal punishment and hell. Because God has acted mercifully toward us in Christ, we can rejoice that we have been freed from that. That the judgment we deserved was put upon Christ. These people look to God and they say what they're experiencing is not fair. That they, these other nations deserve punishment, but they deserve blessing. And God says, no, you all deserve punishment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of you deserves punishment, but I am showing you mercy. I am showing you patience in order for as many people as possible to repent. And if you've been paying attention to how I've, I've revealed myself to you, you would know this has been my plan all along. My character's not changed. I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Exodus 34, verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, aren't you glad that God is like this? Aren't you grateful that our God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? Aren't you grateful that the first moment you sin, God didn't say, done? Aren't you grateful that in the moment of your, moment of your greatest sin, God didn't say, okay, that's it. You've earned it. You're gone. This testimony is echoed in 2 Peter chapter 3, the New Testament. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his promise of judgment as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's saying to his people, he's affirming in them what has been testified about his character throughout the pages of scripture. Don't mistake my patience for indifference. Injustice not covered by the first coming of Christ will be dealt with. All the remaining effects of sinfulness and brokenness, the way that we act unjustly toward one another, it will be dealt with. God will deal with those who seek to manipulate spiritual things for their own glory, the sorcerers of verse five. God will deal with those who transgress covenants, especially the covenant of marriage, the adulterers. God will deal with those who swear falsely. God will deal with those whose word is not reflective of his word, who deal with those, he will deal with those who oppress, actively engage in unjust carrying out injustice over fellow men and women created in the image of God. He will take care of those who oppress the worker, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. God will deal with anyone who does not fear him. So the question is, 
Have we been purified by the work of Christ in his first coming in order to be ready for his second? In order to stand at his second? Because the only way the second coming of Christ is a source of hope and joy is if, if we have received the gift of his first. The two advents of Christ remind us of why God is delaying his judgment, but that also it won't be delayed forever. Will we be ready, church? Now, what does this mean for us today? Let's think about some applications for this strong word from Malachi to us today. And because they are applications talking about the advent, I'm calling them today three advantageous advantageous, advantageous applications for the church. You get it? Advantageous? Okay. I hope they're to your advantage this morning. Here's the first. The first advantageous application. In a sea of injustice, we must trust in the character of God. In a world consumed with brokenness, sin, and sinful actions of others toward one another, that's what injustice is, sinful actions of individuals or governments toward one another, we must trust in the character of God. Brokenness and injustice are everywhere because sin is everywhere. And it can be tempting to think when you're in the middle of it, when you're experiencing it, a disparity. Even as the people of God, it can be tempting to think that God does not care. It can be tempting to think that it will never end. It can be tempting to think that following God is not worth it. Because what advantage does it bring when so-and-so down the street is advancing in his career, he's got more money than he knows what to do with, his kids are healthy, and he pays no mind to God. Why am I doing all this when I'm getting what I'm getting and they're getting what they're getting. Can I just encourage you to say this morning when you have questions, and we will have questions in this life, when you have questions, run toward the Lord, not from him. Hear me. He can handle your questions. He can handle your questions. He already knows you have them anyway. Would you run to him though? Allow his revelation the revelation of himself to you in his word, in Christ, to define your answer to those questions rather than your own observations. Will you trust and believe that God is good? Because the evidence of it is all over the pages of scripture. Will you trust and believe that God cares for his people? That God cares about injustice? Will you trust and believe that God is acting in kindness to this world? Allowing for time for as many people as possible to repent. Would you ask God's help to believe that the blessing that he gives is better than worldly blessing, that his gifts are better, that he is better. Even if everyone around you has every possible blessing this world can give, if they don't have God, but you have God, it's better. You're, it's better for you to have God. God is our solid rock in the midst of storms. You, you've got to build your life upon him so that these 
these moments of difficulty, these moments of perceived injustice, these, these moments of perceived lack of fairness, don't extinguish your faith, but rather drive you closer, closer to the heart of God. There's, a, there's that wonderful passage in the Sermon on the Mount about the wise and foolish man. Do you remember the wise and the foolish man about building their houses? And the wise man, he built his house where? On the rock. And the foolish man built his house where? On the sand. And then what happened? Right? The rains came down and the floods came up. Right? The rains came down, the floods came up. The, the rains came down, the floods came up. And, and which house stood firm? House on the rock. Listen, here's the point. Of that, here's the, the big point of that story from Jesus. Rains come. Floods rise. Winds blow. And everybody's life. Every one of us in this room, we're going to experience some rain. Not just that kind of rain. Trouble rain, right? We're going to experience the floods of this life. We're going to experience the winds blowing and hitting the house of our faith over and over and over again. The only way that you will be able to stand is if your life, if your faith is built upon Christ. You run to him. Allow him to remind you of his goodness and you rest in that. And then, can we help each other do that? Listen, when you have good friends come to you in tears because Florida State was left out of the college football playoff. And Kyle and Dave, are just, I think they're, only, they're the only two FSU fans in the world. And they're screaming about injustice. Are you just waiting back there for that? They're screaming about injustice. Can we just, can we remind them? But in seriousness, when there are actual evidences of injustice, can we stir each other up to remember the goodness of God? That's not what happened here. Listen, when, when these people are complaining in verse 17, they're talking to each other. They're not, they're not talking to God. And what's happening is the complaining is contagious. And it builds a critical spirit. Have you ever seen this? How complaining spreads, just kind of takes over. And that can happen here too. It can happen among the people of God is that we begin to start thinking that God's not acting fairly, that everybody else seems to be prospering and we begin to complain and complain and then all of a sudden I'm in a bad place too and so I begin to complain and then I invite someone else who begins to complain and it just begins to spread. But that is not the posture of God's people, friends. We're to, to help each other get our eyes off the circumstances of this world and onto the glory of Christ. And it's amazing how when we... We set our gaze on heaven. The things of this world become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So let's direct each other's gaze toward Jesus to prevent a critical spirit from eclipsing our love for God and trust in him. Are you experiencing difficulty in this life? Do you feel like your life, the hands you dealt, have been dealt as unfair? Would you just remember how God has acted to show you his goodness and his love in Christ. And would you rest in that today? Yes, 
there is unfairness in this life. Yes, there is injustice in this life. But Jesus experienced the greatest injustice. And he will deal with the remaining injustice. Do you believe that and will you trust that? Secondly, our second advantageous application As God's people, we must develop appropriate expectations for justice. And I just want to speak for a moment about what our desire should be as a people to engage in injustice. Because we believe and affirm that God cares about injustice. He's a just God. He cares about sin. He cares about brokenness. He cares about the way that people he created in his image act against one another instead of for one another. So how is the people of God trying to display the character and nature of God, can we engage when we see injustice? What's our responsibility toward it as the people of God? Because I think this text speaks to this. And it's an appropriate thing for us to consider in the season of Christmas when we are declaring peace, when we are declaring set rightness. Let me just say a couple of things. First of all, it is good for us to see injustice. It is good for us as the people of God to recognize when evil actions are being acted upon other people and declare it as being unjust. That's not right. That's not fair. It's good for us to grieve about it too. It's good for us to grieve because we we see the effect of sin. And we see the way that, that sin has affected our ability to relate to one another because of our inability to relate to God. And there are some some examples of this in our text, some ways that injustice even now is being shown and seen in our our world. Verse 5, God says, I'm going to bring testimony against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. Listen, we should grieve when powerful people, powerful governments withhold money that people earn and force them to live in poverty while they continue to line their own pockets. That's not good. It's wrong. We should grieve when the widow and the fatherless are left in destitute situations. We should grieve the reality of death, right? Jesus did. We should grieve when a a widower is left in a place of abandonment by her family or her society because their spouse dies and they don't have enough resources to continue to to make ends meet. Or when a child loses both parents and they're in a bad situation and, and we should grieve when people take advantage of that to get more money for themselves and neglect the orphan. That's injustice and we should say so. We should grieve when governments don't act in the good of their people. They don't restrain evil. They restrain good and they promote evil, forcing people to leave their homeland and seek refuge other places. That's a reality, effect of sin. We should grieve over that as the people of God. And we should declare it. So we should see injustice, we should grieve injustice, and we should act to help especially among the people of God. Remember, we are a kingdom outpost, right? We are the place where we are trying to show, as imperfect as we are, where we're trying to show what it looks like to live in right relationship with God and with each other. And so our prayer is 
there would not be injustice among this people. That, that we would not act sinfully toward one another in a way that brings oppression, but rather we would act toward one another that brings about flourishing and life and love and encouragement. I hope you feel that here. I hope that you see that your pastors and the membership of this church, we are for you. And we are, we are wanting you to, to flourish in the blessing and the goodness of God. And as the people of God, we should also promote those things which God says will bring flourishing in our society, in our communities. We should promote these evidences of God's grace, common grace, that will bring about flourishing among all people because we're living in accordance with his design. So we should promote laws and, and promote politicians that, again, promote good and advance laws that restrain evil and wickedness. Those are all good things. But also, friends, we must also not grow discouraged when injustice remains. This is what I mean by saying we have to have appropriate expectations for justice. Because there are people even Christians who become disillusioned when all their gospel work, when they're engaging in gospel work and it doesn't bring an end to injustice. When inju it's like whack-a-mole, right? You deal with one thing, something else comes up. Why? Because sinfulness remains. Brokenness remains. And while we should never give up advocating for things that God said is good, we must also recognize that everything will not be set right until the day that Christ returns. It's a balance, isn't it? We want to see human flourishing within the confines of God's people. We want peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We want that. We desire that. We advocate for it, but we don't despair. We don't lose hope because we know that God is acting mercifully in restraints to allow as many people as possible to take advantage of the first coming of Christ so that when true justice comes, when true set rightness comes at the return of Christ, as many people as possible will be able to stand. Not cast into judgment, but brought into the presence of God for all time. This is an important thing for us to talk about, I think, especially among younger generations. There are cries for justice. There are demands among the people of God to act for justice. Those are good things, so long as they are not separated from the, the scope, the full scope of the gospel. And the full scope of the, the full work of Christ in both of his advents. Remember, set rightness comes when we are in right relationship with God. That's the primary thing. If you're not in right relationship with God, you cannot be in right relationship with each other. If you're not in right relationship with God, you will still act sinfully toward your brother, your sister, coworker, neighbor. But when we are in right relationship with God, that should show up. It should have ripple effects that certainly affect the people of God, but hopefully also have other effects in the society around us so that people see the goodness of living under the rule and reign of God. And finally, as broken men and women, we must never forget the greatest injustice ever committed. And that's what Christ endured. Because of our sin. Our sin. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Hear me say this one more time. No one will ever experience a greater injustice declared guilty by guilty people, though innocent, punished by impure people, though pure. And yet no one has ever demonstrated such love. Allowing us to be declared innocent, made righteous. Allowing us to be brought near to God with his character fully intact. Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Have you stepped into the covering of his sacrifice, the mercy God displayed through his first coming through repentance and belief? If not, oh, I pray today would be the day of your salvation. Would you see the love of God on display, the mercy of God on display in sending his son in that first coming? to give you the opportunity to respond in faith. And would you respond today? And then friends, would we rejoice and that one day God will make all things new and he will set all things right. We serve a just God. And that's a wonderful thing. We also serve a merciful God. And that is a wonderful thing. See the mercy of Christ first coming so you can be ready for his second. And let's allow our hope to be built as the people of God by both. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time asking God to help you know how to respond this morning to the word of God. Do you know Jesus? If not, come and talk to us. Let us pray with you. If you do, are you hoping? Are you hoping in the right way? And this God who has revealed himself in the most incredible way, are you trusting in his goodness? And are we thinking about injustice, brokenness in the right way. Not causing us to despair, but causing us to long for that day when Jesus will return. And we do pray, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, would you help us respond in a way that brings you glory and honor, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand and respond as the Lord leads? Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.